will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So ends the reading of God's Word. I have four items of information I want to pass on to you before we look at the text. They're not really related to the passage whatsoever. Friday was uh, Veterans Day, originally instituted as Armistice Day in 1919 to honor the Armistice Treaty, which ended World War I. After World War II, our Congress changed the name from Armistice Day to Veterans Day to remember the sacrifices of America's 25 million veterans. And so there's not enough we can do to express our appreciation for the service of our veterans. Today also, or today is, the day of prayer for the persecuted church. Millions of believers in churches all around the world join in praying annually on this Sunday for our persecuted brothers and sisters. There are many that faced incredible challenges. Some live in countries where there are no churches, no Christian schools, such as Afghanistan, where you've got Islamic fundamentalists that have attacked Christian communities in places like Nigeria and Somalia. Christians in the Middle East, parts of Asia, are a severe minority and they face constant pressure. And so we believe one way we can show our support is through prayer on their behalf. I was looking at the PCA's Mission to the World website, the MTW website. And uh, is, this, is that coming from me? Uh, okay. Uh, I was looking at the MTW website, and Paul Coyster, our coordinator, said, I do believe there will be more persecution when God moves, Satan pushes back. And when Satan resists, the gospel shines. It always has and it always will. If you go on the MTW website, there is a prayer guide for the month of November. And I urge you to go there and download it. It's like a calendar. shows every day for November. And it lists many of the names, the first names, of our missionaries with our denomination that serve in sensitive countries where even their full names cannot be given on the website. But I hope that you will do that. It's very simple to find on the MTW website. Third item of information. This past Thursday, November 10th, was the 140th anniversary of another world-changing event. And it involved a missionary. In the 1860s, a Scottish missionary by the name of David Livingston went to Africa, not only as a missionary, but as an explorer. Some of his writings that he had sent back to England were ridiculed, but now several years had passed and no one had heard from him, and it was assumed that he was dead. And this literally was international news. And so a newspaper in New York City, the owner of a newspaper, looked at one of their reporters, a man named Henry M. Stanley, and he said, go find Livingston. And Henry Stanley went intending to do a stereotypical newspaper article, but he really planned to ridicule David Livingston. Uh, He was very much a skeptic in his own views about missions and so forth. I read over 600 pages of the book written by Henry Stanley on how I found Livingston. Fascinating. 
He arrived in Zanzibar on the east coast of Africa, that small island, and then he made his way to the mainland. And for seven months, seven months, he and as many as a hundred other people with him that he had hired uh, ventured to the interior of Africa looking for David Livingston. And finally, on November the 10th, 1871, he comes to a village called Ujiji. And there he sees a white man who's very, very sick. And he says to him after all this time, and he didn't say it the way Spencer Tracy did in the movie, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He went there to ridicule him, but he was struck by David Livingston's life. And so he stayed there with him and he observed his work and Livingston led Henry Stanley to Christ. And so this man who had come very skeptically and very much to ridicule him becomes a believer. Livingston dies two, to, two years later. Henry Stanley continues his work in Africa doing missions. He traveled to a place where there was a tribe's people called the Bugandans. And they had a king named King Mutesa, King Mutesa I. And Henry Stanley opened up a Bible and he began to talk to him about the Bible. And this king, this King Mutesa said, well, we have another holy book. And he showed him a copy of the Koran. And he said, which of these is true? I want someone to teach me. So Henry M. Stanley, not being a Bible teacher, wrote back, to England, and he said, we need missionaries to come here to teach the Bible. So some Anglicans back in England got together, <laughs> and they sent a Scottish Presbyterian named Alexander Mackay. They sent him there to the central part of Africa to take the gospel. He had six other people that he took with him. Two died on their way there. Two died shortly after they got there. There was fever, there were attacks, and so Alexander McKay sent word back to England saying, we need more people. The work is too great. There's so much to be done. We need more people. But he also said, I want to tell you, when you come, you're going to die. You will die of fever if not from something else. And so many people came. Some lived for a couple of months. And Alexander McKay continued to say, when you come, plan to stay because you will not go back. And it's not because you'll like it here so much that you want to stay here, you will die. And so when those missionaries came, they brought all their worldly goods packed in coffins, knowing that the eventual lifespan would be two years for missionaries in Africa. Third bit of information... The hymn we sang just a moment ago, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord, was written by Timothy Dwight. He's regarded historically in American, at least in American history, as Yale's greatest president. Much could be said about that man. I wrote a little bit about him in that guide for worship this morning, told a little bit about Timothy Dwight. Uh, he had doctorates conferred on him by both Harvard and Princeton. He is looked back on as one of the greatest educators in American history. He was also a preacher. It said that his greatest preaching, his greatest achievement occurred through his preaching when in 1802, one-third of the student body of Yale was converted under his preaching. 
And that's part of the reason why he wrote that hymn, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. Now, there's a fourth bit of information that was texted to me after the first sermon. And they said, the person wrote and said, November 10th is also the birth of the United States Marine Corps. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 14. Paul was planning to visit Ephesus. Uh, in case he was detained, he writes to Timothy saying, if I'm not able to make it, I want to send you these things to do to carry out your pastoral responsibilities. And so these instructions were not just for believers in that city of Ephesus and that early church, but they are for First Presbyterian Church in Macon and all other Christian churches as well. Let's see what it says. He refers to the church in verse 15 as God's household. God's household. Household is a common image in the New Testament for the church. John chapter 1 tells us how we become God's children. It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So having been born again through faith in Christ, we're adopted into his family by the Holy Spirit. One of the early Campus Crusade workers that ministered in my high school was named Jim Bruce. Not the Jim Bruce that was in this church many later, but, later, but he would tell us how he had the opportunity to lead various people to Christ, and he had been on spring break down at Daytona Beach, and a man had professed, a young man had professed faith in Christ. And he said, after I talked to this fellow about the gospel, I did with him what I like to do with a lot of people that I see come to faith in Christ. He had, a, I think, a gift of evangelism. He'd say, well, well Joe, now that, now that you've trusted Christ, what's your relationship to God? He said, well, he's my father. That's right. And he's my father, too, because I'm in Christ. What does that make us? He said, brothers. And he'd go, put it there, brother. I've always remembered. He, he'd say, stressing the fact that now you not only believe in Christ, you're part of the household, you're part of the family of faith. It's interesting, according to 1 John, that the more we have fellowship with Christ, we grow in fellowship with one another. And so there's a relational triangle with God at the head and then believers like at the, uh, the angles at the bottom. And we may try and build unity among ourselves, but it really comes about not by us trying to build it, but by drawing near to God the Father. A.W. Tozer expressed it this way. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, when we do so, we are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Now, I know that's an earful, but here's what he was saying. If you imagine a hundred pianos in a large room, if you wanted to tune them all together, you would take a pitchfork or some type of tuning device and tune each piano to that pitch. Then, as a result, they would all be in tune together. So as believers, if we are in tune with the Lord, if we have fellowship with the Father, then we have fellowship with one another. What Tozer was saying, and I think is biblical, that if we take our eyes off God and we try to focus on how can we be unified, how can we be one, and we make the emphasis on one another, we fail. But if we draw near to Him, if we tune to that pitchfork, then we are unified and we see a result of that being oneness.
He also calls it not only the household of God, but we as the church are called the church of the living God. God promises to make his home in his church, and that should, be a, should have been of special encouragement to the Ephesians. If you'll remember, they lived in a large city, metropolitan area, and much of the commerce was around uh, goddess worship, the goddess Diana, large temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world of architecture. The temple to Diana or Artemis was there. And so when they would see that, this temple and this idol that was marketed and, and worshipped there, the contrast of saying the church of the living God is so different from the temple of a dead idol. So we serve a living God. And Paul reminded the Ephesians that the church is a real temple. God does not dwell in a temple built with human hands. He doesn't dwell in a building, a church building or something like that. He dwells among his people where we have gathered. We are his temple, especially in our corporate worship. And so when we gather, when we assemble for corporate worship, for prayer, for singing his praises, for reading and hearing his word preached for the partaking of the sacraments. God takes up residence among us in some type of mystical way. To put it in today's speech, and I'm not trying to sound funny, God is in the house. And so Christian worship properly begins with the call to worship, an invocation, invoking God's presence among us. Here's how it works. We could all, you can stay at home and, and read the Bible. You could even listen to a sermon on the web. You can uh, sing God's praises by yourself. But there's no way that compares with gathering in an assembly with others and hearing God's word, and it is intensified in a way that, that is not otherwise. Martin Luther said this, At home in my own house there is no warmth or vigor in my heart. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. We put sermons on the internet. We, we do things like that, but that is no way to be a substitute for corporate public worship. It cannot do that because God is present, the church of the living God, as we, as we, gather, as we gather to worship and praise him. Let me move on. Also, the church is the pillar, the buttress of the truth. We're not the foundation of the truth. That's the Bible. We don't create the truth. The truth comes from God. God is the source of truth, but the church, his people, called by his name, are the supporting structures. The buttress helps to stabilize the walls of a large building. The pillars hold up the roof. They hold it for all to see from far away. And so it, this is not true just of the church universal. This is talking about particular local churches. We are to be a pillar of truth in our community. In our time. I love history. I really do. And the older I get, the more I like it, which is kind of scary. I don't know. I also like to wear plaid and stripes together, and I found my left blinker going the other day, and I wasn't turning, so all sorts of things are happening. <laughs> the 
But I am concerned that we are the pillar and buttress of truth in this year, in this place. In that sense, it doesn't matter to me what happened 100 years ago or 50 years ago or the battles they fought. That, I can appreciate that, but my walk with Christ is focused on right here and now. And what are the issues we face? Is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now he begins the presentation of the gospel in, nut, in a nutshell. He calls it the mystery of godliness is great. Do you like to read mysteries? Don't everybody answer at once. Do you like to watch them on TV? Agatha Christie or old elementary age books, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys. We think of a mystery as a story with an unsolved plot or that's not solved till the very end. And so we're kind of waiting to see who's the, who's the, uh, who's the villain here. Who, was it uh, Colonel Mustard in the lounge with the candlestick? or what? You know, we're, we're trying to figure that out. But that's not how this is used in the Bible. Uh, in the Bible, the word mystery is not referring to something that's unsolved. It's referring to something long hidden that's now been revealed. And so things that were hidden in the Old Testament days, like the passage we heard read earlier from Isaiah 53, 700 years before the birth of Christ, there you have the prophet Isaiah giving a very detailed description of the suffering servant, this redeemer who would come. Now, other passages, Psalm 22, a, a graphic description of the crucifixion and the resurrection, all those pointing ahead, that was a mystery. Now we look back and we see, oh, this is what it all meant. We have the rest of the story. We, it's not a mystery to us, that part of it, because we see what things were pointed forward toward the, the foreshadowings and the promises and the prophecies about Christ who came. And so he summarizes that mystery in six lines. First, he says, he appeared in a body. That God the Son had always existed in eternal splendor, but at the incarnation, he became a man. He took upon himself a human body, a real human body. So he had the divine nature and he had the human nature. It wasn't a fake body. It wasn't a, an apparition of some sort. It was a, a real body that got thirsty and got hot and sweated and needed rest at times, was exhausted at times, and experienced the same things that we experience in our body. He experienced pain like we experience when he was beaten by the soldiers, when he was spit upon, when he was flogged, when he was crucified. It was real. It was nothing fake. It, it would have hurt him like it would hurt you. And he, then he died in the flesh, his real body. It was a real corpse taken down from the cross. Then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. He did not remain in the grave. He was vindicated. The Holy Spirit confirmed and proved that Jesus was God's own Son. He did it at his baptism. He did it on the Mount of Transfiguration, but primarily and ultimately through raising him from the dead. The resurrection was such an important event that it required the work of all the members of the Trinity. God the Father raised the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus laid down his own life, but he did not raise himself up. He was raised from the dead by his Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the ultimate vindication. That's the ultimate stamp of approval that Christ was who he claimed to be. I mentioned to you some time back that I was on, on Saturdays. I'd love to say that I've finished all my sermon preparation like on Thursday and then 
you know, meditate on it and pray about it on Friday and then do something around the house on Saturday and then walk in here on Sundays with this freshly, this perfectly baked cake. I asked a friend of mine, I, he, he said, when do you finish your sermon preparation? I said, man, I'm still working on it on Saturday, Saturday night. He said, I finish on Monday. I said, Monday? He said, yeah, I work all week. I preach it on Sunday and I finish it on Monday. So on Saturdays, often I'm uh, sitting at some public place like a Starbucks or a fast food. And I'm not only eating, but, but studying. I'm sitting in the Starbucks in a Barnes & Noble back some time ago, and a fellow's on a cell phone, a table away from me, talking, talking, just going on and on and on. And I'm sitting there studying to preach a sermon from Ephesians on predestination and election. And he turned around. After about 45 minutes, he just turned around and looked at me straight. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm studying. Studying what? Well, I'm preparing a lesson. <laughs> a lesson on what? I'm a preacher. It's a sermon. He turned and pulled his chair over to my table. And he said, what are you preaching on? I said, I'm preaching on predestination and election. For the next hour... I listened to this fella, I could tell you his name, it's Lance Winslow. He was passing through town, he was running, he runs sales of these franchises for this particular business, and we've stayed in touch off and on through email since then at times. But he, uh, he gave me an hour's worth of why uh, the God of the Bible, the scriptures themselves, Jesus Christ, why it's not believable. And he was very, very fluent. He's the best red unbeliever I've ever come across. After about an hour of sitting there trying to understand all that he was saying, he finally asked me a question. And he said, why do you believe this stuff? I said, that's simple, because of the resurrection. And for the first time he sat back and he didn't have anything to say. I said, the resurrection of Christ. I said, now I can't prove that to you, but something happened. Something happened that changed history at the resurrection of Christ. Well, here is that the Holy Spirit vindicated. He vindicated. It was a stamp of approval that what Christ had said, that he was the only way to God, that through him we have redemption, that we have the forgiveness of sins, that we have new life, that we can know that we will spend eternity with God. That was the vindication. If you're a seeker here this morning, or if you're skeptical in your faith, I would urge you to examine the resurrection. Will that prove to you that all this is true? No, but I would say this, it points, those clues point in a direction. They point clearly in a direction that it's true. So he's vindicated by the Spirit, and then he's seen by the angels. He definitely was seen by the angels at the resurrection. They bore witness to the disciples. They witnessed to what they had seen, which is the resurrected Christ. Philip Ryken points out that this could also mean the apostles, because after the resurrection of Christ, the apostles saw that as well. And we do know that for 40 days after his resurrection, we call these the 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, he appeared to many people, one time to more than 500 people at once. Now, why was that? He could have appeared once to just a small group, and, that, and then he could have ascended to heaven. It was very, very, very important that these people know that this was true because of what they were getting ready to go through. And they were to become the eyewitnesses of not only his life, but his resurrection. 
Without their eyewitness testimony, we ourselves would not believe in the resurrection because the resurrection of Christ has come to us down through the ages from the eyewitnesses who were there and saw it. And there's nothing quite like an eyewitness. A number of years ago, this church sent me to Eastern Europe on a vision trip to see some of God's work in Poland and the Ukraine and Romania, and it was a wonderful trip. It lasted almost two weeks. And I came back, and I went to the public library looking for a book, a large pictorial book about the prison camp at Auschwitz, where we had visited one afternoon right outside of Krakow, Poland. And one of the guys with me had the sense to purchase that book when he saw it there for $18. And I come home to find that it's at least $100. And so I'm at the library and I'm saying, do you have this book? They said they don't. I said, can, can I put in a purchase request? And you order it and have it here as a reference. While I'm standing there talking to the person at the reference desk, a woman standing next to me, and here's our conversation. She said, I was just in Washington at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And she said, I saw a lot of these things that you're describing as I told them about the book. And she said, have you been to the museum? I said, I was at Auschwitz two weeks ago. She went, oh. I said, you see that arch? We stood under that arch. You see those railroad tracks? We walked on those railroad tracks right there. The largest cemetery in the world. A million and a half people buried in one particular place there. Or their remains scattered there. There's nothing like an eyewitness, and the disciples were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so when, in many cases, it cost them their lives, they knew it was true. Then he says, was preached among the nations. Uh, once again, the gospel in a nutshell. After they saw the risen Christ, the apostles preached the risen Christ among the nations. That is the peoples. It doesn't mean every geographical boundary, but the ethne, the people groups. They received the commission to do this from Jesus himself. Before he ascended, he told them in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and into the broader area of Judea and to the broader area of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they saw this happen. They waited in Jerusalem. And then they were anointed with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with languages they had not learned, unknown tongues. And the Bible emphasizes that the people that heard them that day said we are hearing them in our own languages from every nation under heaven. It meant if you had been there that day and you spoke Russian and the apostle spoke Greek, when he began to preach, you would have heard it in Russian. And that was true for a whole host of ethnic groups that were there. Pentecost was only the beginning of the worldwide work. So it spread not only in Jerusalem, but then outward to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Paul himself had brought the gospel to this city of Ephesus some years before. Once they came to faith in Christ, they knew they had a responsibility. They then take the mission, the gospel to others. And that's still true today. Jesus is preached among the nations to this very day. If you want to know about the worldwide expansion of the church, you won't get that information off the major news networks and typical news magazines. You have to look for it. But the web is a wonderful, wonderful resource. 
go to mission frontiers. They focus on unreached people groups in the world, and you can read about things that are happening in various places. Read Operation World. Use it with your family before you have a meal, and you can pick a nation per day, a country per day, and read all the demographic statistics, and it will give you a current spread of the gospel. That's online as well, Operation World. But it continues to happen that Christ is proclaimed in every tribe, nation, and tongue. So may this local church always be about, 25 years from now, 50 years from now, always be about the gospel, taking the gospel to every tribe and nation. That is God's plan. That is his will. That is his desire. And if you approach me, and as some have, not necessarily in this church, and said, well, I don't think we ought to do missions until we cure all of our problems at home, you'll never do missions. Nothing is said in the scriptures about waiting until we solve all our own problems before we try to take the gospel to other places. And he's believed on in the world. That's the last, next to the last phrase. Wherever Christ is proclaimed, God changes lives. The first to believe were the first eyewitnesses. John arrived at the tomb. He looked in, he saw the grave clothes. And it said he saw and believed. John was only the first to believe. Then Mary Magdalene believed and told the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then the apostles believed. And they began to preach the gospel to the nations. And on the day of Pentecost, nearly 3,000 people are converted. And then the book of Acts tells us that as they continued to preach, the Lord added to their number day by day. You know how many people come to faith worldwide every day, best we know? About 15 to 20 years ago, it was roughly 75,000 people a day. 75,000 people per day worldwide profess faith in Christ. Now, this may be encouraging to you. You know what that is today? It's not 75,000. It's 174,000. 174,000 people a day, according to Patrick Johnstone in the Worldwide Christian Encyclopedia, come to faith in Christ every day. That ought to encourage you. That is exactly what this is saying. He was believed on in the world. We see it happen. I was speaking two days ago to one of you here in the church that went with me and some other men to Haiti on one of our trips down there. In last April, April of 2010, after the earthquake, we, we went to see, we went on behalf of our congregation because we were being asked to purchase a large piece of land on which now has been built and is being built a seminary and also now it's expanded to a university in the city of Jeremy. We went there to scope out the project. While we were there that Sunday morning, we worshiped at a brand new church. It was just a few months old that Donnie St. Germain and some others had started up on a hillside. And that day we were there dirt floor, brand new benches that some church in Tennessee had come and cut these, made a template and cut these benches for people to sit on. There were about 150 people there. A number of these had just recently come to faith in Christ through door-to-door witnessing and invitations. That was April last year. What's that, about 16 months ago, 16 or 17 months ago? That congregation of 150, this morning, 700 people are there. And especially in other parts of the world, that, that's normal. That is normal. So he's believed on in the world. Then it says he's taken up in glory, probably refers to his return, the second coming. 
Glory is the word used to describe brightness and splendor and radiance. And it also then closes not only with taken up in glory, but I want to go back to the mystery of godliness. The godliness of this mystery. What it means is this mystery, the gospel in a nutshell, the bad news, good news, that all of us were created by God, every person here made in his image, but our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. They experienced spiritual death. They were cut off from him. We are born dead spiritually. God could have left us in that state where he says, I must punish sin and the punishment is death. But he promised even back then in Genesis a redeemer who would come. And that was Jesus himself. Jesus is God the son who had become a man. He lived a perfect life. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my father. He allowed himself to be arrested and crucified. And there on the cross, he became a substitute, even as those lambs and other animals in the Old Testament would be a substitute to take the guilt of God's people's sin upon them and would die in their place. So Christ on the cross became the substitute for our sin. He died in our place. And as we already went over, he was raised three days later, vindicated by the Holy Spirit, shown to be the Son of God, that what he said and did was true. And now, God offers us the gift of eternal life through faith in what Jesus did. So you say, well, how can I be right with God? If there is a God, how can I know him? Well, it's not by your own efforts. It's only by the efforts of Christ and what he did. Now you just receive those. You receive them by faith. That when he died, he died for you. When you trust in that, it affects your life. And that's what this means, the mystery of godliness. What causes a life to change? Some of you here in recent years, I knew you before you came to faith, and I've known you since, and your life has changed to those of us that knew you. Your values have changed. The way you treat other people has changed. What brought that about? Was that a New Year's resolution? No. It was the mystery of godliness or the godliness that's been produced as a result of believing the mystery of the gospel. I like how one commentator put it. He said, we live in light of this passage. What does it mean to live worthily of the gospel since Jesus was manifested in the flesh? Then let us glorify God in our bodies. May our hands serve him. May our lips speak about him. May our minds think about him. Since Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, he said, let us pray that we ourselves will be vindicated on the day of judgment. Since Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, let us testify to his grace, declaring the gospel to everyone we love and sharing in the worldwide work of missions. Since Jesus was and is believed on in the world, let us believe on him and with all our hearts for salvation as well as for everything else that we need. And last of all, since he was taken up in glory, let us await his soon return with eager expectation, longing for the day when we will see the great mystery for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the, the simplicity of the gospel and that this mystery has been revealed to us through time. We thank you that it's true and it's real. May our trust be in Christ and in him only. May you help us to live with a sense of the brevity of life, the shortness of the time that we have to serve you and to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.